Sweet time of worship this morning. So good to, to be with you and to sing God's praises and to thank him over and over again for his goodness to us. Uh, we are a blessed, blessed people. Well, we wrapped up Ephesians last week and we're jumping into uh, a new series over the next uh, several weeks. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm feeling a little bit old this morning. As I was prepping, I, I learned that 46 years ago, our world was introduced to the Star Wars universe. How many of you were there? Oh, yeah, just a few. Everybody else is like, isn't that like a YouTube thing or something? The original Star Wars episode, now known as A New Hope, they, I guess they had to give it a new name, um, showed this fierce struggle between uh, the light side and the dark side of the Force. And we can all kind of hear that and identify with that. We've seen that struggle played out in a, in a thousand different places. And uh, now, almost 50 years later, we're watching that story unfold with prequels and sequels, all kind of revolving around this moment, the Battle of Yavin. Did I, did I say that correctly, all you Star Wars folks? Where the Death Star gets blown up. That's kind of the defining moment in the Star Wars story, and everything else finds its orientation to that. One of the planets that suffered under the Empire was a planet called Mandalore. And uh, we have seen this uh, sequel or prequel, which one is that? Uh, <laughs> the Mandalorian. And uh, it's been fascinating. Kimberly and I have been watching that and uh, kind of watching that story unfold. And uh, this planet was just devastated by the empire. And a few of Mandalorians got away. And so this central character, uh, the Mandalorian, is making his way around different places. He gets a cute little Yoda to take along with him. Uh, it's a great story. But there's this phrase that got my attention. And you hear it over and over again. And it's, it's a place where the Mandalorians find unity. It's like when they say it, they're saying, I'm one of you and you're one of me. And it's very simple. This is the way. It's a little bit weird, you know. It's like, this is the way. This is the way. Okay. God, we got that over with. Let's move on. Um, but here's what hit me as we're going into this series. I hear a lot of people, they don't say it just like that, but all around our culture, everybody's saying, this is the way. And, and I just can't help myself. I ask the question, is it? How do you know? How would I know if your way is the right way? You see, I read in the book of Proverbs that there is a way that is right to a man. And that way leads to death. So I want to make sure I find the right way. Don't you? Here's a phrase that I want us to lock away as we're making our way through the book of Proverbs. And it's, it's simply this. Our way, your way, my way, is a way, 
but it's not the way. See, we don't have possession of that. If you're on whatever the way is, you discovered it, like you found it or it found you. But it isn't the way because you said it was or you believe it is. It's the way for a whole other reason. For the next eight weeks, we're going to learn about the way, specifically in the way of wisdom. And we're going to read about it in the book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs. And uh, it's so funny. We were just singing that song, Be Thou My Vision, and uh, talking about the way of wisdom. And it just took me back to my earliest days as a Christian. And guys, I just, I was the most insecure, confused, aimless kid that you can imagine. And I found out that God loved me. And it was the greatest surprise of all. And I wasn't expecting to be much of anything. I, I really was helpless and desperate. And I'm, I'm telling you guys, I asked God for one thing, wisdom. I didn't know anything else to ask for. And I'm not saying I'm wise. I'm just saying that if God gave me wisdom, measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and Haman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Imagine that. And from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom. That's our author. And I want to hone in on how this started. God gave Solomon wisdom. He didn't come up with it on his own. He's not just a super smart guy. He's not even unusually observant. God gave him wisdom and personalize this today. God gave Solomon wisdom for you. Let's look at the kind of overarching makeup of the book. It's in generally four sections. You can break it down further than that. But the introduction is in chapters 1 through 9. And in those chapters are 10 speeches from a father to a son, Solomon to his sons, and then four poems of a character uh, called Lady Wisdom. And then there's this contrast that's set up between a wise son and a foolish son. We go back and forth and compare those two. And then there's a comparison between Lady Wisdom 
and Lady Folly. And so that's kind of the makeup there. The key verse, and this honestly outlines the entire book, is uh, Proverbs 1.7. And it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. I'm not going to go into great detail today, but I want to give you an idea of what we mean when we say fear of the Lord. And I'm expecting that you'll probably hear that again a time or two over the next eight weeks. The fear of the Lord is used 14 times, that phrase, in the book of Proverbs. So it's a controlling idea. And uh, here's the definition for you. It is a proper or humble acknowledgement of God's holiness and power, which generates conformity or obedience to his will. Just jot down 1 Peter 1, 15 through 19. That might be an encouraging devotional passage for you this week. But big idea, the fear of the Lord is a concern about offending God while not doubting his enduring love for his children. We have to put those two ideas together or it becomes something other than what God intended. According to this verse, it is the preeminent condition for gaining wisdom. And notice, I didn't say gaining salvation. It's wisdom. Salvation is by grace through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That's it. You don't have to be a wise person to gain salvation. But there's nothing more important than wisdom for a child of God. That, like, that is what God gives you to make your way through this crazy world that we live in. Now contrast this fear of the Lord idea with the second part of that verse. It says, fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now, when we say despise, the fool doesn't, doesn't think poorly of wisdom in and of itself. They just actually think that they don't need it. They got all they need. They're fine. They're good. They don't need anybody telling them what to do. They've got it all figured out. That's the fool. So they think wisdom's great, and they think they got all of it they need. The rest of the book, uh, we might say, is just a collection of wise sayings, some shorter than others. Um, there's a lot of literary stuff going on in terms of how those were written and collected, collated in there. But chapters 10 through 29 are primarily attributed to Solomon and then a few others as well. Chapter 30 is the words of Agur, and chapter 31 is the words of King Lemuel. And those last two chapters, uh, in a sense, kind of illustrate what it would look like to follow words of wisdom, to follow that way of life. I love how author uh, Douglas O'Donnell summarizes Proverbs. He says this, Proverbs is a theology of the redeemed man or woman living in the world under God's rule. That's a big picture idea of what this book is about. Here's some interpretive keys. We have to be very careful about how we interpret the book of Proverbs because it's not a narrative like our Gospels. Um, 
It's not prophetic like Daniel. Well, and I say that carefully because I am going to speak of some prophetic characteristics of Proverbs, but it's not in the same sense as Daniel or Ezekiel, uh, some of those prophetic books. So we want to make sure we come to it. This is wisdom literature, and it has its own features about it. So here's a few to keep in mind. These are in your outline. First of all, wisdom is skillfully applying what God says is true. And the reason that we say that is because wisdom isn't simply knowing something, It's acting upon what you know. If you know something and don't act upon it, then you're a fool. Does that make sense? So it it, it requires action. We know it and then we do it. Secondly, most of Proverbs conveys principles and probabilities, not promises. Principles and probabilities not promises. There are promises in there. You just have to make sure that it is one if you call it one. There are plenty of places where Proverbs says something. Here's the most classic. It comes up all the time. Parents, train up your children in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. That's not a promise. That's a statement about what is most likely true. But there are absolutely exceptions, and that's hard for a parent. That can be heartbreaking. But God is not promising to produce that. It's just a general truth about the reality in a broken, sin-wrecked world. So be careful about what you assign the idea of promise to. Along with that, differentiate between descriptions and prescriptions. So a description is just saying, this is generally what something might be like. If this, then that. Again, a general description. A prescription is a command. It's an imperative. It's saying, do this. And there are those in the book of Proverbs. But once again, we want to make sure we distinguish between those two And we're going to approach those differently. Lastly, the wisdom of Proverbs, and this is the most beautiful thing of all, is perfectly embodied in Christ. Now, this was written centuries before Jesus walked the earth. But think about it. Everything that's written about the wise in the book of Proverbs would apply to the life of Christ because he lived perfectly. Uh, Paul Tripp says this, a prophetic, uh, describes Proverbs this way, a prophetic portrait of what Jesus would be like when he took on flesh and lived. We know this is the case by how Paul described Christ in the book of Colossians, Colossians 2, 1 through 3. Here's what he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and then here it is, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Everything that's true about the wise in Proverbs is most certainly true of Jesus. So we find him there. Whenever you see a reference to the wise son, just put Jesus in there. You're getting a, a perfect description of who he is and what he's like. So as we get into this study, let's just look at it this way. There's wisdom here for all who want it. And we're going to look today at Proverbs 4, 1 through 7, which is really just a great invitation, again, from a father to a son, uh, but an invitation to get wisdom. He writes this, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words, keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Beautiful words. I'm going to identify here three features of wisdom that Solomon offers his sons, and they are content, context, and calling. And one of the most immediate reference points for me as I read through these things was parenting. And I, I just thought, you know, giving wisdom to a 10-year-old is different than giving wisdom to a 25-year-old, right? Giving and receiving all that, it's, it's an interesting uh, pathway, and as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking I, I had good days and bad days. And there were days when I might have looked a whole lot more like a fool than a wise man as a dad. But there is just a, a precious thing. And again, even outside the context of parenting, when we are giving away what God has so graciously given to us, that's as God intended exactly what he's going for here. So let's look at these three features, beginning with content. Notice uh, Solomon points to, in verses 1 through 3, instruction, precepts, teaching, words, commandments. So there's a body of content, words and phrases. I'm not trying to be kind of childish here. I'm just saying these aren't just sort of random crazy ideas that Solomon just woke up one day and, and thought, I think I ought to write that down. This is very intentional content that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Solomon, as I said earlier, he is not the source. So he, he actually says here in a few places, don't... don't uh, Forsake my teaching. Um, don't turn away from the words of my mouth. They're only his because his, his mouth is the one speaking it, or his pen is the one writing it, but he doesn't own it. 
This is God's content. Solomon is just a courier passing along what was given to him. Remember back in 1 Kings 4.29. So if anyone is to become wise, they must receive this wisdom from an outside source. It can come through people, but there has to be a greater basis than the person themselves. If you or I were to get wisdom or give wisdom to somebody, and it's actual wisdom, capital W, wisdom, then we can't claim it for ourselves. We're just simply passing it along. God's word was and is the primary source of wisdom. And Solomon says to his sons and all who would search for wisdom, the content of wisdom is grounded and verified in divine revelation. So back to somebody who says, this is the way. And we go, how do I know? It has to be consistent with the word. That that is the filter. That's the framework. That's how something is determined to be true or not. It doesn't matter who said it in terms of a, of a person. It doesn't matter how, how confidently we say it doesn't matter what kind of position of authority we might be in. Listen, nothing that I say right here is true simply because I said it right here. If it is true, it is only true because it's God's truth, not my own and not yours. So that's the content. Then there's a context, and uh, I think this is probably where I begin to feel a little emotional about this book. Ray Ortland Jr. says this, this book breathes with the spirit of adoption. We may therefore study Proverbs not to earn a sonship still out of reach, but to bear witness to a sonship already given. When we sing about God as a father, That means something to me. Um, I have a father, and I love him, and I believe that he loves me. But more often than not, I felt like I kind of had to figure it all out on my own. So for God the Father to come along and say, I will show you the way, means the world to me. Because apart from that, I'm as lost as can be even today. So I'm grateful for the context of this book because it's in the framework of a father and his sons. You could say a father and daughters, mother and daughters. It's this parental, familial, generational picture of community where truth is delivered from one to another. Uh, Look what Solomon says here. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me. I guess let me ask you parents, are you serious about that? Are you handing off teaching to somebody else, somewhere else? Or are you begging God 
to so fill you with wisdom and truth that you can give it away to your kids. Not perfectly and not completely, but faithfully. That is certainly our calling. The generational transfer of wisdom is the result of diligent instruction. We know that from Deuteronomy 6. When God set up the nation of Israel, he expected the older generation to pass down truth to the younger generation. You shall teach the commands of Scripture diligently to your children. And that image of teaching is like sharpening a blade or a tool. It's repeatedly running a whetstone over the edge of a blade to sharpen it. That's the picture here. Over and over and over again. Two things come to mind. Um, There's no telling how many times I've quoted this verse in here, but I just thought, like in light of this, like again and again and again, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Nothing is more true in this life than that. You and I can't trust ourselves. We need God to show us the way. Secondly, I thought uh, when we were in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, I gave you this phrase, mind the gap. Obviously, I didn't come up with that. But I, again, whoever it is you're imparting to, there is a gap in your life and in mine between what I believe and what I confess and what I say is true and the way I live. And I want that gap to shrink over the course of my life. And I believe you do too. But we got to mind the gap. Got to pay attention to that and not pretend as if we can say stuff and it doesn't apply to us. So as we're gaining and then passing along wisdom, we want our lives to conform to that wisdom progressively over the course of our lives. More on that in a little bit. Calling. So we've got content, we've got context, and then we've got calling. Uh, We have a value that we say often around here, life change is a way of life. That's the calling. If you believe that Christianity comes without a call to change, you're missing it. It's all about change. It's all about The theological word sanctification, being transformed over the course of your life to look more and more and more like Jesus. All of Proverbs, and this passage in particular, is forward-looking. The commands, the cautions, the promises where they are found are timeless. And Solomon assumes that they're just as applicable in a person's life at 80 as 18. You don't ever stop changing. It's a way of life. I think Solomon assumes that wisdom gained must become wisdom kept. It's something that we have to continue to rehearse and respect and hone in our lives. The great danger here is to believe that one will mature spiritually to a place where they no longer have a need for wisdom. What 
a tragic error to make. All the senior saints that I've known who have really kind of stayed faithful, when you talk to them near the end of their lives, they would say they are as eager and in need of growing in wisdom as they ever have been because there's life ahead of them that they haven't yet lived. So they're asking God for wisdom for what's next. And they can't necessarily just count on what they got in the past because the past is different than the future. One of my heroes, Howard Hendricks, at 80 years old, said this, as long as we live, we must learn. When we stop learning, we stop truly living. Our arch enemy, the devil, loves to trip up older people who feel they finally know it all. So our calling, I'm going to give you four words to think about. Our calling is to gain, grow, guard, and give away. Gain wisdom wherever God provides it. Grow in that wisdom, speaking specifically of applying it to your life, living it out. Guard it. Make sure it's always in alignment with what God says is true. And then give it away. And as you seek to give it away, that will keep you on track. Because you'll be confronted with it yourself. Happens to me every time I stand on this platform. Lastly, for those who persevere in their quest for wisdom, there's a a promise in this passage for protection. Verse 6, do not forsake her that is wisdom and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. That is a promise for spiritual protection. And the opposite is true. If you forsake wisdom, she will not keep you. And if you neglect her, she will not guard you. And the most tragic illustration of this is the one who wrote this book we're studying The wisest man on earth, if you look at the end of his life, it's heartbreaking. And it's sobering. It's a cautionary tale for all of us. He ignored his own instructions. He was, as the book of James says, he was a hearer of the word and not a doer. 1 Kings 10 and 11 says, From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Keep in mind, this is King Solomon. He is the most powerful man in Israel, and he is to be the model of wisdom. King Solomon loved many foreign women. When Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. The whole divided kingdom of Israel, look that up, is a byproduct of Solomon's neglect of wisdom. 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. To walk in the way of wisdom is to be in, but not of, the world. It means we can't get away and shouldn't try. John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus, he said to his father, he said, I'm sending them, where? Into the world. And all he asked God to do was to protect them from the evil one. Now, what were they to take into the world? The wisdom of the way. Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No other way to the Father than through him. So when Jesus says, this is the way, you can count on it. That is the way. And it's not that because you and I think it is. It's because he said it is, and it's an invitation to day after day after day Beg God to help us align our lives with the way. And he will do it. That is something. You ask for it, he'll do it. Over and over and over and over again. Jeremiah 6, 16. A prophetic voice again, long before Jesus walked the earth. He says this, thus says the Lord... Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. And here's the promise. You will find rest for your souls. That's what's ahead of us next eight weeks. And as we ask the question, so what, at the end, I want to invite you to pray to prayers in a in just a moment of reflection i'm going to read them to you and you communicate these to god in in whatever way you see fit the first is psalm 139 23 and 24 the psalmist writes this search me O god and know my heart Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So you are more or less following the way today. Ask the Lord to show you wherever you're off the path. He's glad to show you. And there's no condemnation in that. He wants you on the way. And then secondly, the second prayer is Psalm 86, 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where you find the way. Take a moment. Pray those to the Lord and then we'll conclude.
Father in heaven, you're so good to us. We need you and we're glad that uh, you are so mindful of our ways. We desperately need your wisdom to make our way through this life. And we thank you that you have provided generously all that we really need to know in order to walk well with you and with each other. So, Lord, thank you for this day and the the days that are ahead um, as we dive into the book of wisdom in Proverbs. Lord, would you reveal to us more and more of who you are and what you're like and how you've called us to live. Lord, thank you for Jesus, the perfectly wise son. Lord, help us to follow hard after him in the days ahead. We pray that in his name. Amen.